Um, so, thank you for coming out tonight. Um, I want to say thank you to a number of folks in our church. I'm probably going to miss some people, so if I do, I'm sorry. But um, we are going to celebrate just the hands that make the thing go, and we're thankful for that. And I hope you can stay afterwards for some fellowship and some food. We have a pretty good turnout tonight. You guys, you guys just came for the food, didn't you? That's how, that's how you get people to come to church. Feed, feed them food and, the, and they'll show up. But David and Susan Fergus, um, just they have their hands in a lot of different places. Susan just does a lot with women's ministry, with community groups, and Dave is our fan, financial secretary. So we're thankful for them. Thank you, guys. For Zach Johnson and for Logan Ricks, who worked tirelessly for setup and teardown and on the AV team. So thank you to them. Um, Jack Kish and Hudson Richter, they do a lot with the video. They're back there doing that. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, <clears throat> Josh and Renee Rager, you guys are involved in a lot of different things for setup and your involvement in missions and also in worship. So thank you. For Eric and Rebecca Allickson, thank you for your just role with student ministries, um, with women's ministries and various different things. Uh, Warren and Vicki Johnson, you guys have served with community groups. Thank you so much for doing that faithfully. Jesse and Sarah Doss, you lead our worship ministry. Thank you for that. Um, for Matt and Jenny, who also participate on our worship team. I know I'm seeing Shelly Herzog out there. She does a lot with our women's ministry as well, so thank you, Shelley. Asa Veek is our church treasurer, so thank you, Asa, for all of your tireless work that you do there and using your skills and abilities. And, of course, the elders are myself, Jesse Das, Eric Allickson, and Phil Thompson. So these guys have given a lot to the church, and we appreciate, we appreciate each and every person who, who works and serves. So thank you. Thank you so much. We can celebrate that. We can celebrate that tonight. Um, I want to just give you guys some updates on what's happening right now in the life of GCF. It feels like I haven't done that for a while, so um, <clears throat> the elders are, are completing our meetings with people discussing the appreciative inquiry questionnaires. We've had some just good times with folks sitting down and just kind of hearing their hearts and hearing from them and meeting with them. We've been through just a tough year, so it seems like that's kind of hitting a number of different things, um, just hearing about what people are excited about moving forward, but also just dealing kind of with some of the things in the past and the ways that maybe there's pain and hurt and just confusion. Um, so that's been good. We hope to get done with that by late June, early July, and then we transition and kind of just, um, you know, I guess I, I don't want to say move forward. This is part of our movement forward, um, meeting with people and, and ministering to them. So uh, we see and we celebrate the things that makes GCF truly great. Um, I think one of the things that we see is that uh, there's just a great love for God's word in our church and a love for people, a love for um, practicing the gospel and living out the gospel. So when we talked as elders um, and we went through the uh, questionnaire and as we just meet with folks, I think that's one of the things that makes GCF truly unique is just a real love and a passion for the gospel, a love for the word of God, and a real love for uh, bearing each other's burdens, being in each other's lives, fellowshipping, 
just enjoying fellowship and, and, and um, communing with one another. So our community life has always kind of been strong. So we thank you for that. We pray that this will continue to mark us. This is something that is good, worth celebrating, and worth pressing on in. Um, I was blessed and encouraged by the turnout on Wednesday night at the park for our picnic. I think um, it made me realize, you know, we've always been good at this. We've always been good at picnics, and we've always been good at being together and just enjoying each other's company. So that was, that was just a wonderful time. We had great weather. That was, that was great. And it was an example of how our people just, I guess, love being with each other, how people live out the gospel and minister to one another. So thanks for coming out. And um, I think one of the obstacles that GCF faces right now at the moment is our community and community groups. That's probably um, just some, one of the things that we're kind of hearing. We realize that. We recognize that. And on top of everything that we've endured in the past 12 months, <clears throat> now we enter the summer months. And uh, GCF community groups, I would suggest to you, are typically struggle in the summer months because people's schedules are somewhat irregular, or maybe we could say definitely irregular. Lots of people are traveling, they're going to the cabins, doing camps, whatnot. So community groups have always kind of taken a little bit of a pause during the summer, uh, maybe some, some more than others, perhaps. Um, so we just encourage you to consider just the unique time that it is in the life of the church. Thank you for your patience and your faith through it. You know, and as we sing the song, Be Still My Soul, um, you know, there's just a lot of transition in the life of our church. And, um, you know, I'm just blessed by that song. There's so many lines in that song that are so applicable to faith, I guess, at any point. But, uh, you know, collectively, perhaps, I, 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 I sing that song and I think of all the different ways that God is at work in my own heart and how that song ministers to me. But perhaps collectively as a church, God is teaching us, be still, be still, my soul. God is here to guide the future as he has the past. And everything that seems mysterious to us now will at one point be clear because God will make his way. He will lead his people even through um, just a weird time, just, a, just quite frankly, a, a weird time where we just don't have a lot of answers. We really don't. But we have a God who does have all of the answers and he will guide the future as he has the past. So collectively, right now, I would just say we are learning to be still. Collectively as a church, each and every single one of you is learning how to be still, my soul, and just walk in faith. Uh, with this, so with that, and I want to just practically encourage you guys to practice hospitality with one another. I know Matt preached a sermon a month ago or so, and that was wonderful to hear. Um, you know what, depending on where community groups land right now, we're kind of relying on corporate community events like the picnics, like what we're going to do tonight. But also I want to encourage you guys to just, you know what, we haven't seen the so-and-sos for some time. Let's, let's have them over for dinner or let's, let's do fireworks with them. Or if you don't want to host anybody at your home um, because it stresses you out, you have to clean your house and everybody in your house gets upset because... Um, mom isn't happy with the cleanliness level. If we don't want to give Satan an, uh, an opportunity to attack our families, go to a park. Go to a park. Meet up at a park and say, hey, you know what? We haven't seen you for a while. Let's, go. Let's just go fellowship at a park. Let's grill some burgers or whatever it is. So I just want to encourage you guys to be a little bit more intentional about just reaching out and just communing with other folks. Um, 
And, uh, you know, as the dust settles, we kind of maybe think of it this way as the dust settles, you might realize, hey, you know what, there's something happening here in kind of this circle and our community groups, we, you know, that's how we think about them kind of reemerging here. So there's plans, um, but right now it's just a, kind of a tricky, awkward time. So I just want to encourage you guys to be intentional about that. Um, and last, I just want to invite you guys and ask you to keep praying for a building. The elders have been praying earnestly for a building. And um, I just want to say that last week we got a lead. Somebody gave me a call, and that's all I can say about it at this point. Um, and I'll be learning about it tomorrow a little bit more at lunch. I'm going to have a lunch meeting with somebody. So I wish I could give you a little bit more info. I know you guys probably want a little bit more info. But... Um, you know, um, uh, I, we just have confidence that God is going to hear our prayer and he's going to provide something and do something in our midst. So let's uh, continue to pray. And it seems like, um, you know, th that's just, I think that's a priority for us. And it's definitely something that we want to see happen is to move on from Living Waters Church. We're really thankful for this place. But uh, believe it or not, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, um, this Sunday, this service tonight actually marks the exact one year period or time that we had our first service here a year ago. It was June 28th. It was a Saturday night. I believe it was June 28th. So tonight's June 27th is exactly one year. And I just feel like this has been a wonderful um, blessing for us, but uh, it's been an oasis in the desert, but I think it's time for us to, to really think about moving on. So... Um, we're thankful for the Alexons who are going to be hosting Sunday morning next week. And um, I, uh, I wanted to mention this too. Uh, you guys probably read the email yesterday. We are planning to meet the next five weeks outside at the Alexons' home just so we can have Sunday morning services. There's a number of different reasons why uh, Saturday or Sunday at 4 p.m. is going to be problematic throughout the month of July for um, for, for a number of different reasons, starting next week, July 4th, it just seems like 4 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon is going to be tough to pull off. So um, we just decided, you know what, why don't we just bank on Sunday morning, Alex's house, it worked really good on June 13th when we did it. Um, it was a wonderful time, let's just go for it. And uh, we have a plan, rain or shine, so you guys can bank on it. Thank you for being flexible. We know that for some of you it's a little bit more of a drive. Um, uh, but it's not, it's not, the, it's not where we're going to permanently land. I can, I can promise you that. So, uh, appreciate your, your patience and your flexibility and your faith. And I just trust that God will continue to hear our prayers and he will do something for the glory of his name. Amen. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. All right. So that was a little mini sermon before the sermon. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture passage for tonight. So I invite you to open up the, your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. We will start reading in verse 18 on through 3, 6. So would you, would you join me in Mark 2, 18? Okay, Mark 2.18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new, one, the, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. The Sabbath, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are Lord even of the Sabbath. You are Lord of it all. You are the God who is the famous one, and you call all peoples to worship you and bow down to you. And that is good, that is right, because you are the glorious one, you are the famous one. You are the Lord of the Sabbath, you are the one who brings us rest, and you are the one, Lord God, who causes our hearts to delight. You are the one who forgives our sins, you are the one who makes us right and heals us to the uttermost. You're the one who reconciles us to the living God, and therefore... You are Lord, and we praise you, and I pray, God, that you would teach us to worship you as Lord, to bow down to you, and to find rest in you. Help us to see the different ways, perhaps, that we struggle to actually enter into your rest. Help us to see that, and help us, Lord God, to address that, and help us to repent of any sin that we have. Lord God, there are ways, Father, that I reject the gospel, and there are ways that I suffer toil and exhaustion because of the way that I refuse to enter into your rest. Lord Jesus, teach us tonight what it means that you are Lord of the Sabbath. May your people, myself included, all of us, Lord God, may we enter into your rest, into your Sabbath rest, not just on one day, but all days. 
at all times of our lives, no matter what the storms we might face, whether there's peace or tranquility, Lord God, we have the opportunity to enter into your Sabbath rest by faith in Christ. Teach us, Lord. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. So let me ask you, if you've ever seen the movie or read the book, Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Great movie, great story. Eric Little, you know, his name is pronounced or uh, spelled L-I-D-D-E-L-L. So I want to say Liddell, but I have to train myself to say Little because apparently people like, who know more about stuff than I do say it's Little. So uh, Eric Little, um, he was an Olympic runner who competed in the 1924 uh, Olympic Games in Paris. And as a Christian, he took the Sabbath very seriously. In fact, perhaps unusually seriously. Uh, he vowed to never run on Sundays as his own personal conviction to keep the Sabbath day holy. So he would not run in an Olympic event on Sunday. So if an event landed on Sunday, he would not run on that Sunday. And it actually did. In fact, it was his best event. I forget exactly what it was. It was the 100 meters or whatever. Um, that was scheduled, and that was his best chance to win the gold, not only for himself, but also for his country. And it landed on Sunday, and um, you might be wondering, did he run? And most of you probably know Eric Little's story. He didn't run on that Sunday. He didn't run in that particular event, and he gave up his best chance to win Olympic gold. So there you go. I told you, spoiler alert, uh, he didn't run. But I would like to make an entirely different point from this episode, and I won't actually dive into that until the end of the sermon. So you'll have to wait to the end to get my connection there. So now I have you all sitting at the edge of your seats. Right? All right, so we work our way through the conflict section of Mark, and it spans chapter 2, 1 through 3, 6. And last week we covered the first two where Jesus eats with sinners and he heals the paralytic. Um, and this week we're going to um, cover three. We're going to put three together. And as the conflict kind of narratives, there's, there's five of them, as they progress, you can also see the intensity of the opposition progress. At the beginning, you know, the Pharisees are kind of mumbling underneath their breath. Who is this guy? Why does he speak like that? And at the end, it's, uh, they're plotting how to destroy him. They want to put him to death, and they make no qualms about it. So you see the progression there. And it might be a little bit of a stretch to cover all three with the, fast, uh, the fasting and then the Sabbath. The two that really definitely go together are 2.23 through 28, and then 3.1 through 3.6. Those two stories definitely very easily go together because on the one, Jesus declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And on the other, he displays. He displays that he's Lord of the Sabbath. Here, I'll show you. I'm going to heal this man with the withered hand. See, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This man is healed. He's entered into my rest, as it were. Um, he has been blessed by me. So the, the big question is, how do verse 18 through 22, how am I going to mash those things together? Um, where it deals with fasting. How do I fit that together with the Sabbath? Um, in the other encounters, Jesus makes the point that the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I know you guys are all pretty smart, and you understand the basic gist of that story. Yes, 
the Sabbath is intended to be restful. It's not intended to be arduous, trying to keep all of these laws and so on and so forth. Um, so that's an easy point for us to get. But I think there's something unique that we can get, get, get by connecting these episodes. How does fasting, and what Jesus teaches about fasting, how does this go together with what Jesus teaches about himself being Lord of the Sabbath? So that's what I want to challenge our thinking with tonight. And to do that, I want to look at three things. The Pharisees, um, understanding the Pharisees, I want to look at fasting, and I want to look at feasting. Okay, so Pharisees, fasting, and feasting. So let's start with the Pharisees. Who were they, and what did they think? The, the Pharisees were, were very religious um, uh, and, and zealous leaders. And uh, one of the most important things, perhaps, that we can know about the Pharisees is that their faith was driven by a desire to avoid God's judgment. They also believed that they needed to adhere to strict, strict adherence to laws, to uh, laws of God in order to please God and to avoid his judgment. So in a sense, you could say they were driven by fear. And, uh, and they thought that, you know what, if we just, if we perfectly follow the law, we would please God, we'd avoid his judgment. Now, in the case of the Sabbath, um, the Jews wanted to make sure that they were not violating it. So they came up with some extra biblical rules along the way. And eventually, over time, those rules became law and they became tradition. And one of the rules that stuck, one of the rules that they suggested, one of the rules that they demanded, in fact, was that you could not surpass 1,999 paces on the Sabbath day. And if you did, that was considered doing work. So 1,998, you're okay. 1,999, I guess you're still okay. It would be 2,000. Now you've sinned. Now you've broken the law, you, um, you know, you've worked, and you've, and you've uh, violated the Sabbath. In order for the disciples to work their way through the grain fields, which they were, they were in the grain fields, they surely would have had to take more than 1,999 steps, which is about half a mile or so. Um, so they are upset about this. They're angered. They're perturbed. Look at them walking around, feeding themselves. They're breaking the law. They, surely, that's 2,000, 2000 look at that, 2003, they've, they've broken the 1,999 step count. Um, and then the more obvious violation, there's, I guess, two violations here, would be that they were plucking heads of grain and they were eating, they were eating the, the grain because they were hunger, hungry and they were considering this work. So that's another violation. And we can see the way that uh, legalism, one of the things that we can say about the legalism, is that it leads to absurdity. I mean, you guys can all see this, and you guys would all agree, this is absurd. This is just absurd. I mean, they had other rules, like it was work for you to untie a knot. So if your sandals actually on the Sabbath became knotted up, you were not allowed to untie the knot until the next day, because that would be work. It's just absurd. So when tradition trumps God's word... One of the things that we see, one of the things that we learn is that there are no end to ridiculous rules that will be needed to regulate every circumstance that comes down the pipe. 1,999 paces, that's absurd. Assuming that they didn't have the electric counters, you know, the step counters, <laughs> you know, so now what, what does that mean? You have to keep track of your paces. <laughs> that doesn't sound like it's easy. That sounds like it's a pain. That's work, exactly. It's work. Enjoy your day off. 
Now you have to start budgeting your steps. Not only do you have to count them, you have to budget them. It's like, oh, you know, honey, I'd really love to say goodnight to you, but <laughs> I'm at 1,992, and I'm going to need at least 12 to get there and back. So, uh, yeah, that's work. That doesn't sound like rest to me. That doesn't sound like the intention of what God intended with the Sabbath. I think we can all see that. So in addition to the absurdity of the traditions that the Pharisees enforced, there's two uh, distinct points of irony here as well that I want to point your attention to. Let's look at the irony that's going on here. First, it's ironic that the, they were experts in the Jewish law, and yet Jesus essentially asked them, haven't you read your Bibles? Did you, did you crack that thing open lately? <laughs> of course, they were like, I memorized it. What do you mean? So that, that would be offensive. Um, but he essentially says, didn't you read where David was on the run from Saul and he and his men, they came across the bread of the presence that's only supposed to be for the priest, but he took it and he ate it. And that was, it, that was what he should have done. And uh, of course, Jesus's point is, you don't understand. You, you, you're not, this would have been insulting for the Pharisees. It would have been insulting for them to be schooled by Jesus like this. He says, don't you, don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know, you don't know God, is what he's really saying. You don't understand the God behind these commands. You don't understand the God behind the Sabbath. You totally missed the point. You have no idea. And, and of course, they would have been insulted too and infuriated actually with the fact that he says, yeah, David was the Lord's anointed. And, you know, like David, actually, I'm the Lord's anointed too. <laughs> you can see the Pharisees just boiling over. They're upset by this. So everything about this is kind of ironic. Here, the experts in the law actually don't understand. They, they're totally missing the point. Another observation that we can make, I, I think, and this is perhaps just a point of application, is the further one gets from God, the more rules that they need to make to regulate their lives, and the more absurd it becomes. I don't know if you guys were to see this, but why would this be the case? Because when you know God, you are driven by desire to please him. When you are in Christ, you have a new heart, you are a new creation, and you now have a heart that desires to please God. And when you are not, when you, when, and, and that takes care. That, that takes care of a million different things. You don't have to tell me not to murder. I know that because I have a, I have a, I've, I'm born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't have to convince me of that. There's a thousand different things, a million different things, a zillion even, of different things that you do not have to actually put into law to clarify because I am, I am trying to worship God. But you know what? When you are not, when you are not in Christ, I suppose, when men are either driven by Christ or bowing down to Christ, their, their authority in their lives are either God or your authority is essentially your sinful flesh. And when your authority is your sinful flesh, there are a million different laws to uh, clarify laws, to clarify laws, to keep people to, 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 so, so that, um, I suppose I could say that if you're ruled by your sinful flesh, there's no end to, to the laws because there's no end to the ways that sinners can create and devise evil. So um, I think that uh, laws, endless laws, more laws upon laws, is a sign, an indication of somebody who's drifting further away from God, maybe even a society. And perhaps we could, see, we could probably see that in our own day, right? There's more laws that we have perhaps today than we ever did in our nation's history. 
And perhaps that's an indication of not our cultural uh, you know, movement towards God, but a drift away. Okay, second point of irony is because the Pharisees were driven so much by avoiding the judgment of God, they actually invite the judgment of God. And this gets to how they're drifting further away from God. Notice this. Look at verse uh, 5 in chapter 3. What does it say? He reaches a point of anger and grief. Jesus is angry. And actually, when you look at the word, it's fury. He's not just upset. He is infuriated with the Pharisees for the way that they are putting these laws upon people. Jesus is furious and he's grieved of the way that they are missing the point of the Sabbath and the way that they are imposing this upon others. Instead of it being a gift to mankind, it is a burden to them. The tradition of the Pharisees turned this blessing of God into a curse. And Jesus was furious and grieved about the way that their tradition blocked people from coming to Christ. For the way that their traditions and their laws that they were imposing on others were keeping people from coming to Christ. And we should pay attention to what Jesus gets angry about. We should, be, we should pay attention to what we get angry about. That says a lot about who we are. Now, Paul Tripp, he said something interesting about anger. He says that anger, unrighteous anger, isn't only the things that we get mad about that we shouldn't, but he also indicates or he suggests that, you know, you have an anger problem when you don't get mad about things that you should. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and we have an anger problem, and it surfaces when there are things that we should rightly be angry about that we don't, that we don't care about. That's an anger problem, too. That's unrighteous anger. Well, Jesus does get angry here, and he doesn't do so unrighteously. He is righteously angry about this. And really, if you think about it, what is he angry about? He's angry about this. You are blocking people from coming to me. And this might seem trivial to you. This might, this might seem, you know what? You're blocking people from coming to me, and now I'm angry. You know what? If we think about this at, at you know, our own human level, this would be arrogant, wouldn't it? Okay, uh, so this is a little bit comic, comical. But just, to put this into perspective, I'm going to give you this illustration. Um, you, you know when people, they, they say this joke, you know when people say, hey, you know, it was nice to meet you. It would be trivial and, and perhaps arrogant to say, yes, I agree, it was very nice that you could meet me too. All right, you guys ever hear that one? Everyone, anybody ever hear that one pulled out? Really nice to meet you, really nice to spend time with you. Yes, it was, it was nice for you to be able to meet me too. I'm, I'm thankful for that. That's it's kind of arrogant, you know, we say, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever actually said that for, for real, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I've heard that as a joke. In a, in a way, I guess in a way, this is kind of what maybe we could say Jesus is kind of doing here. Why isn't Jesus considered arrogant when he gets angry at people hindering the way to him? Doesn't it seem a little bit angry or, or, or uh, I'm sorry, a little bit arrogant to you? And I would suggest the reason why it's not arrogant for Jesus to get infuriated with those who hinder the way to him is because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The reason why it's not arrogant for Jesus to proclaim and to, um, and, and, and to intend to become famous in all of the earth 
right? This is God's intention. Do you guys realize this? God intends to be famous in all of the earth. He, he demands even that he be worshipped by all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. People cannot talk like that. None of us here can talk like that. Nobody that you know, other than Jesus himself, can actually say, you know, my intention is that I would be famous in all of the earth and people would come and bow down and worship me. This seems like arrogance. It sounds like arrogance, I think, when Jesus gets mad that people are blocking the way to him, but it is not. And here's why it is not. It is not arrogant for him to do so because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It is right. It is good. It is loving for him to get angry and infuriated with those who step in the way of those making their way to Christ. Because Jesus is the final destination, the highest goal that anybody could reach. So for him to get angry with the Pharisees was right and it was good that he got angry because he is the Lord of life. He is the source of all rest. He is the source of all joy. And the only way that you're going to find that, the only way anybody on planet earth will find that is by coming to Christ. So it is loving for Jesus to do anything that he can to open up any and every road that leads to him. And anybody who stands in the way of that, it is right for Jesus to be angry and infuriated with that. And the Pharisees do this. They do this by, po by putting all of these laws, these needless laws, that actually prevent people from embracing Christ and knowing the goodness of the Sabbath. So that's, I think, what I would say about that. Um, the Pharisees, let's look at fasting. What can we say about fasting? The Pharisees fasted and the disciples of John fasted. Now, John was an ascetic, which means that he was given into self-denial and his disciples emulated him in that. You know, he had his followers as well. And the Pharisees made it a duty to fast twice a week, to go without food. Um, and they saw it as a badge of personal piety. And they like to do this, and Jesus rebukes them for this. They like to do it in kind of a public way. So everybody knows we fast. We disfigure ourselves so that everybody sees how holy we are. And Jesus is not impressed with this. And when they notice that Jesus' disciples do not fast, they question him about this. Why, why do they not? Why do they not fast? And this is interesting how Jesus answers this question. He answers this by using a metaphor of the bridegroom. Weddings in Israel lasted for about a week, and it was a time of eating and drinking. And nobody wanted to be involved with a fast when the wedding feast was on the calendar. That was the time, right, to party down. You don't want to be fasting at that point. But the point of fasting, as I thought about this, and to really boil this down, because I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, the point of fasting seems to have something to do with the presence of Christ, because what does Jesus say? He says, there's no need to fast when the bridegroom is present. And you notice he puts this in a marriage analogy. He puts this in a marriage analogy, a wedding feast analogy. There's no reason to fast when the bridegroom is there. So in Jesus' thinking, what does fasting have to do with? It, I think what he's teaching us is that the reason why you fast is to get more of Christ to get more of his presence in your life and to hasten the day of his return when Jesus will come back, when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. But he's here with them now. 
Now is not a time to fast. Now is a time to be with Christ. And the purpose of fasting is to that you would have his presence when he's not there physically. So this is how we see the continuity, I would suggest to you, between fasting and the Sabbath. To see how Jesus brings people to himself. That's the point of the Sabbath, that you would come to me. And when you think about the point of fasting, what's the point of fasting? To get Christ, to be with him in his presence, to know his presence, and to hasten the day when Jesus will return. So I think that's what I think the connecting point is for us to consider it has to do with, with the way that we experience the blessing of Christ who is with us and who is for us. And this brings us to the third point, and that is feasting. And it should, it should, I should, it should be resting. It should be resting. But that does not start with the letter F. And it had the you know, Pharisees, well, I guess that's the same sound. Fasting and then feasting. So uh, even though feasting perhaps is the wrong word, it is the right word in a key way. And here, here's, here's how it is. Because it gets at the heart of resting. I think we could say the, the real essence of resting is actually feasting on Christ. And if you go back to the fasting, notice he uses an illustration of marriage. What do you do at the marriage ceremony? You feast. What will happen when the bridegroom returns in Revelation 21? There will be a feast. And I think, so I think in this way, feasting is the right word. Because at the heart of resting, I think, is feasting on Christ. It is being satisfied with Christ. When Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, what is he saying, essentially? He's essentially saying that he is the Sabbath. <laughs> I, I, I am the Sabbath. Me. The Sabbath isn't ultimately about following rules. It's actually not about a day of the week. It's so much bigger and so much richer than that. It's about knowing Christ and about feasting and all of the benefits that belong to those who truly know him. So that way, the Sabbath is actually, in a, in a, in a way, I, now, just to be clear, I do believe that there's good in having a day of the week where you designate this is a day of rest. This is a day where we fellowship with other believers. This is a day where we go to church and we worship corporately. That's good. There should be times in your life where you just, I will not work because I need rest. But you know what? The believer has this benefit. The believer has this benefit of even in the midst of the hardest trials and even in the midst of a situation that might be stressing you out, you can Sabbath rest in that. You know why? Because you can have faith in Christ and you can believe Christ is for me. He is good. He will guide the future as he has the past. You preach that to your soul. You knead it down there deep. And when you do, you can have rest in the, even in the midst of a hard season of life. I think that's the Sabbath rest that goes beyond just a day or following rules it's the beauty of following Christ. It's the beauty of truly knowing Christ and feeding on him, feasting on him. So let me revisit the story of Eric Little. And in order to truly understand the significance of Eric Little, I think you have to understand him against the backdrop of one of his rivals, a guy by the name of Harold Abrams. Now, while Eric chose to sit out of the race on Sunday to honor the Sabbath, Harold, by comparison, did something that was really intriguing, or said something, I should say, that was really intriguing. Notice what he said. 
when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Think about that for just a second. When the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. What is he saying? He's admitting that he could never, he could never ever take a day off from running. Why not? It isn't because he has such a great work ethic. It's because deep down he has a great need for affirmation. He has a great need for approval. And I think every single human being is like that. In other words, he says, if I don't have, if I don't have something that tells me that I'm excellent, then I don't have a purpose for living. And by contrast, Eric Little, he didn't need running. He actually didn't need it. <laughs> this is really interesting. Both of them are runners. Both of them do it for very different reasons. Eric Little didn't need running. He doesn't need the gold medal. He doesn't need the affirmation and the achievement and the accolades. Why? Because he has a God, he has a Savior who has approved him and said, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are my child, you are righteous. And God has stamped him justified. You don't have to do anything to earn any kind of approval. You have value, not because you can run fast, you have value because you are a child of the living God. Do you hear that? Young people, do you hear that? You have value on the basis of the fact that you are an image bearer of the living God. And if you are in Christ, you are a child of the living God. You don't have to add anything to it. Notice what Eric Little says. He's known for this saying. And compare this. He says this, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's amazing. Why does Eric Little run? He runs because he delights in God. He does not run to justify his existence. He needs nothing from that race. But Harold Abrams does. He's not free to take a day off. And there's a work that goes much deeper than actually running. It's this work of having to prove to yourself and to other people and to God that you're good, that you're, that you're righteous. That is the work that never gives up until, until you know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until you know the gospel, that work will never stop nagging at you. You will never, ever, ever actually find rest from trying to prove your worth and your existence unless you know the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ that purchased you, that makes you a child of the living God. And because of that, because Eric knows this, he can constantly be at rest. Even in his running, there's a sense in which he's at rest. I'm not trying to earn the approval of God because he's running for a God who's already accepted him. I can't add or subtract anything to that. That's a glorious reality. And by comparison, Harold's life really is never at rest because he is doing more than the work of running. He is doing the work of self-justifying. And that's the one that never gives you a day off. You never get a day off from that. And most people, and I would say perhaps all people, work and they try to work at trying to prove themselves, to convince God 
others and ourselves that we are good people. And that work is never over, like I said before, unless you truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how are you doing in this way? Are you resting in the gospel? How are you like Harold Abrams and the Pharisees, perhaps? Now, if your first inclination is, oh, I'm not like them at all, that I've been, I've, I understand that. I think, let me say this, in gentle love, you don't understand your sin nature. You don't understand what the ministry of Jesus is to you. You don't understand all the different ways the Bible constantly addresses your drive for self-righteousness and the ways that you try to approve yourself on your own merits in your own ways. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I, if I examine myself, there are many different ways, even to this day, where I find my approval and not in the fact that I am a child of the living God, but in how well I do in certain things or how much I've accomplished or how much I've achieved. I reject the gospel at that point and I don't understand it. I don't understand grace at that point. So if you are quick to say, no, I don't struggle with that. I understand I'm saved by faith alone. Yeah, you probably understand it up here, but you really don't. There's a way, there's a nook and cranny in your heart where you don't quite get it. So I'd urge you, I'd consider you to understand that and to examine the ways that you are sinning by trying to do the exhausting work of self-justifying. How might there be a place in your heart where you are trying to do this? Now the sad and angering irony of the Pharisees is that their Sabbath was probably the most burdensome day of their week. And it actually didn't bring them any closer to God. In fact, it brought them, it, it drove them away from God. Jesus was angry with them at the end of it all. You know, in our heavy lifting of self-justifying, it doesn't bring you any closer to God. In fact, you drift further away, if anything. What they couldn't see and what they needed to see was the way that they could never have true rest and they, they, until they truly met with the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. He is the one who lived the life that they should have lived and died the death that they should have died. And only when we encounter him, Jesus, and his finished work on the cross can we truly find rest. Not until we know deep down within our beings that we are accepted by God. On the basis of Christ's finished work, nothing that we could do, it's not until you really embrace that that you can have the deep rest that you desire and that you need. All of us need that rest. Then the Sabbath, as I said before, becomes more than a day off of your work. It is your entire existence as you feast on the work of Christ, and find satisfaction in all that he is for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Sabbath rest. And thank you, Lord God, that we don't have to count our paces. And thank you, Lord God, that we do not have to self-justify ourselves. It is a tireless work. It is a tiring work. And Lord, it doesn't bring us any closer to you. Thank you 
Lord God, for the way that you have stamped justified upon us. And that there is nothing that we can do to add to our acceptance that is already ours in Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that each and every one of us would examine our hearts, help us to see the, the different ways that perhaps we are trying to justify ourselves before you. And Lord, I pray that you, we would find freedom, that we would find rest, that there would be deep peace within our souls, that we would be still, that we could be still. And know, God, you are the God who guides the future as you have the past. So please bring us into your rest. Let us taste your rest. Let us taste, Lord God, the goodness of sitting still beneath your sovereign rule and reign. Thank you for being a good God. You are good. You are good. And we love you because you first loved us, and we thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.